we forget with extremist movements that violence is just one means to an end. And the end, the purpose, is essentially social and political change. And that end can be pursued through political and social means as well. And we see a lot of energy and a lot of effort being spent in the extreme right space in terms of getting some of the most rabid sort of racist concepts and conspiracy theories to be normalized as part of public discourse and political discourse. Hi, welcome to the Big Tech Podcast. I'm Taylor Owen. Again, I'm, I'm solo this week. This is going to be the second of our episodes that I recorded from Dublin, Ireland, where I was attending the International Grand Committee on Disinformation and Fake News. As I explained last episode, it is a committee of parliamentarians from around the world who are looking at how they can better coordinate their efforts to govern the internet. And and one of the thorniest issues when we talk about platform or internet governance is hate speech. And really the, the range of potentially harmful speech, ranging from just rude behavior right through to the incitement of violent extremism, that is enabled through the way we communicate digitally. And the the challenge we face is that some of the speech that is enabled bumps up against our current way we regulate speech in society, which was really designed for a physical world. And at its core, there is an irreconcilable tension. Governments need to choose whether they're going to prioritize the protection of of the citizens' ability to speak, their freedom of speech, or to protect the rights of those that are endangered or harmed by that speech. And these are in tension with one another. There are very few people in the world better positioned to talk about that tension and that governance challenge than Sasha Havlicek. She's the CEO of the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, which is a a London-based think tank that works on countering violent extremism, mostly in the digital space. But she spent her career working on much broader spaces of conflict resolution, the incitement to extremist violence globally, and increasingly on digital operations in elections, doing some really pioneering work on monitoring and measuring harmful speech in election periods. So we're lucky to have the chance to speak to Sasha today, and here is my conversation with her. Hi, Sasha. Welcome to the Big Tech Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Taylor. Thanks for doing this. We are here at a conference on tech regulation, and a big piece of that is this challenge of regulating harmful or hate or extremist content on the internet and on platforms right now. And I mean, it's one dimension of this much bigger range of issues, but it seems to be a core one, and it's one that's in the news daily now. And you've been working in this space for a long time. So I wonder, just as some framing, how do you define extremist or hate speech or harmful speech online? When, when, when that comes up, what, what are you talking about? We have a very specific definition of extremism at the Institute that we use, but I'm not sure that that's really what you're asking. What you're uh, interested in is how do, we, how do we go about finding this stuff online and what is the response that we need to have? Well, finding me implies defining, right? Hate speech, I think, is quite clearly defined. And you're talking really about uh, abuse directed at a group um, based on uh, protected characteristics. And as you know, of course, there is illegal hate speech that is addressed by law 
but often not particularly well in practice. And so we see this proliferation of illegal hate speech, but also of the sort of the tail of that, which is an enormous amount of hateful, abusive, typed language, slurs, and so on. So not necessarily illegal, but harmful in some way to the discourse. That's nasty, that can be harmful, um, but that it isn't classified as illegal. Now, we look at extremist content, and we, we define extremism as a system of belief that posits the superiority uh, and dominance of one in-group over all other out-groups as sort of de uh, facto uh, antithetical to the application of universal human rights. Um, so extremist groups that proliferate these ideas of supremacy. And that's core to it, is the supremacy element of it? Correct. I mean, it is antithetical to any form of pluralism, and it is uh, a call to action. It is the advocacy of systemic change in order to reflect that worldview of supremacy um, of that in-group, yeah. sort of that dynamic of in-group, out-group isn't just a belief, but it is propagated it, um, ev- ev- with ev- a view to changing evangelism the system. to it almost, Correct. right? Via Correct. the speech act, exactly. Yeah. And so, this you know, again, we've been looking at the propaganda machineries of extremist groups across the ideological spectrum. Yes, can you give us a range of so what's what's that band of actors? Well, I think and it's, groups? I mean it's very very big, but I mean you know we came to this looking at extreme right and white supremacist and islamist uh, extremist content. But of course you find extremist content on the far left of the political spectrum, you find it in the context of certain religious contexts. So you find, of course, extremism is expressed in many, many different forms within many different geographic and communal environments. So nothing really new there. What's new is the rate, the scale at which those types of ideas and those movements, of course, can can spread those ideas now in the digital era. And we saw, in a way, with ISIS, I think the single most effective global marketing phenomena, phenomenon of our time. <laughs> and so, you know, within a year, you saw ISIS really becoming the global phenomenon that it was. And it was, you know, a digital phenomenon on mainstream platforms. What we've seen uh, since is, you know, a massive clamping down on specifically the Islamist extremist space. And that was a government clamp down, right? Yes, and you saw governments in... The West, but really then mobilized governments around the world in order to, to make this a top priority, put a lot of pressure on the companies, essentially to self-regulate and to remove this content. And you know that's where those big conversations started around pushing the companies to do content moderation and removal at scale and to do that through AI. At the time, they were partners on that to a certain degree, right? The platforms were, I mean, they were being forced, they were doing it under the threat of regulation. Well, I think but they were the engaged outset, in that, right? There was quite a bit of pushback around the request for automation of removal. They didn't they didn't want to do that? Well, there was and there was, you know, quite quite a quite a few months, I mean maybe even a year of, of discussions around how that simply wouldn't be possible. And there was quite a bit um of sort of broader pushback. But the you know, very quickly we've gotten to a place where I, I can't remember exactly what the percentage is, but it's, you know, 99-ish percent of that type of terrorist or violent extremist content now being removed, uh, not through flagging, not through government flagging systems or, you know, civil society flagging systems, but through the 
automated systems of the companies themselves. Is there anything particular about that content that makes it easier for automated systems to identify rather than this other stuff we're talking about now? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think in reality, there's much more nuance and much more gray to terrorist and violent extremist content than people would like, um, you know, to, to really uh, address. It's not all violent acts being circulated. It's Correct. Also... So whereas, you know, you know, you get the sharp tip of the spectrum, the violent and branded content, in many ways, the most effective propaganda is the less violent, the non-violent and often non-branded content that we've seen. And there's much of that. It was extremely effective because after all, these are movements that are inviting people to come in based on a sense of common purpose, um, camaraderie, brotherhood, sisterhood, nurturing, and so on and so forth. It isn't just violence. And so there's a very, very broad spectrum of terrorist supporting content out there. And, and indeed, you know, some of that still goes unaddressed. The challenge with the far right is that it's, you know, this is a network movement that doesn't sit on the UN prescribed terrorist list. And so it lends itself less easily to the sorts of measures that have been taken around Islamist uh, content. And as a result, it is much, much more available. This type of content is much, much more available. The tragedy in Christchurch has, I think, brought home the need for a major policy and operational response to this, you know, the proliferation of white supremacist and far-right content. So do you see a continuum then in the types of tactics and tools that were being used in these more extreme movements to what's now being almost mainstreamed into our politics now? Irrespective of the differences in the ideological frame, I mean, essentially they do more or less the same thing, which is they speak to different types of audiences in fairly targeted ways in order to bring people progressively more and more on site. And they do a lot of work to undermine opponents and to delegitimize opponents. And so this, of course, is, you know, common across the board they are more or less present on different types of platforms their information operations take slightly different shapes and forms we we see increasingly around the far right the development of a sort of alt media network which is extremely active and dynamic much more public facing, um, much less hidden in many ways than yeah. than the Islamist space. So again, yeah. in fact, it's the opposite of they're trying to be as seen as possible. And, right? Yeah, I mean, and the objective a... there really is around mainstreaming. So yeah. I think they know how to skate that. You know, so sort of they understand the line between legality and illegality and, and acceptability and unacceptability, Correct. like where that threshold is, exactly. right? Of what's the difference between mainstreaming and radicalizing? Increasingly, we forget. I think often with extremist movements that violence is just one means to an end. And the end, the purpose, is essentially social and political change. And that end can be pursued through political and social means as well. And we see a lot of energy and a lot of effort being spent in the extreme right space in terms of getting some of actually the most rabid sort of racist concepts and conspiracy theories to be normalized as part of public discourse and political discourse and achieving that quite effectively. So moving to what's happening now, and you work both on these more extreme alt-right communities, um, certain radicalization efforts, but also just on broader disinformation campaigns, what we'd broadly put in this sort of bucket of either foreign interference or manipulation, uh, media manipulation in various ways online. 
one of the things we we just had selection in Canada, right? And you were working on it, and we were working on it to a certain degree. And I don't think we saw this kind of acute problem in the way that I think it probably existed in has existed in European countries. Yeah. And I'm I don't or that we saw in 2016. Exactly. So from 2016 on eight or so elections, Correct. a real pattern of the types of things you're talking about. I'm not sure we really saw that here. But what we did see was this like real degrading of the discourse. Mm-hmm. We saw it very siloed, very polarized, more radical. So like every group was a bit more extreme. Um, and I'm wondering how you make sense of that. Yes. Like what's happening in our ecosystem So in the disinformation space, we've seen a real evolution since 2016. We've been looking at malign information operations and how they're organized, what the lead actors, the targets and the tactics. So in 2016, I mean, and and just after everybody, of course, was alive to this Russian threat and looking for it. And ever since, I think everybody's been looking specifically for that type uh, of... A very particular type of thing, correct. right? That, yeah. And in fact, most government agencies, international agencies that have been set up to look for uh, this kind of information manipulation in electoral context are looking for state actor, foreign state actor interference. In reality, the actors are much, much more complex than that. And you see an intersection of foreign state and non-state actors, transnational non-state actors. We saw, for instance, in the German elections, a kind of interplay, a reinforcing of the type of content that was being put out by the international alt-right and Kremlin sources, for instance. But increasingly, what we've really seen is a whole spectrum of transnational non-state actors, special interests from the US, from other countries, specific religious groups, interplay with domestic extreme groups and domestic political actors in this space. And so that bleed becomes a very, very challenging thing for governments to respond to, as well as for the companies really to take on. The other thing I think important to say, we've seen a kind of evolution away from the most obvious fakery, the fakery of content, fake news, this idea. Clear websites that are publishing fake information exactly. and distributing them. And exactly. The, yeah. And fakery of distribution. So the most obvious sort of... Inauthentic bot Inauthentic bots. Which is not to say that we haven't found that type of activity. We do find it. We've found that quite systematically across these elections, but they're much smaller scale. And the, you know, the overall impact of that, I think, will be fairly limited. One of the things that happened in Canada in the election is there was speculation that there were American Trump supporters infiltrating Canadian hashtags because mm. they had they looked like coordinated activity and they were all using the MAGA tags in their profiles. And when we looked at it more closely, it actually looked like it was just people. people. <laughs> so they were real people. Yeah. They were Canadian. Yeah. They were conservatives, obviously. They were Trump yeah. supporters. They were using the MAGA label as a signifier of an ideology, probably, yeah. right? Not as anything other than just yeah. saying they broadly agree with that movement. Yeah. And they were just behaving. They were speaking a lot regularly in public yeah. on the platform in the election. Yes. So yet they were all behaving in yes. a very similar way, using the same kind of language pulled from other countries. So that's just a degradation of the discourse or something. Like, what is that? Well, that's correct. A, and I, I mean, I think, you know, there is... There's also the stoking of organic extremism. Mm. And if you invest in that and stoke those networks and build that up over time, it is very effective. 
But increasingly, I think we need to be wary of the fact that state actors can, in fact, also buy <laughs> networks of people, of people real yeah. people, to do certain types of things. And as we look at a widening array of state actors involved in the in this space, we need, I think, to be constantly understanding that, you know, these are small costs for uh, governments and it may be much easier for them to do in fact than doing the inorganic in in inauthentic um, activity that can be spotted now so there is this blend of things happening and it's very problematic because in terms of responsiveness you see governments in a position to do something about clearly defined foreign state activity but if they're seen to be snooping on their own citizens who are expressing a political opinion becomes genuinely problematic. And we've seen outcries in relation to that type of activity of government in a number of countries. As we ta start talking about solutions to this and the policy framework in which this is being discussed, I feel there's this desire for solutions to what might be irreconcilable tensions in this conversation. In that I think there is potentially a divide or a tension between protecting people from harmful speech online and protecting people from being able to speak absolutely online. Right? Like the, those just might be in irreconcilable tension to each other, which ultimately means this is a political conversation. Mm -hmm. right? This is going to require citizens and people to make a political choice about what kind of speech mm -hmm. they want in this digital space. Is that a fair characterization of this? There's an element of that. But if we reduce this to a conversation about in terms of the online world, about free speech versus censorship, essentially, the removal of hate speech, I think we're not addressing the fundamental challenge. In reality, the real harm, in my mind, in relation to uh, what's happening on the platforms today around hate speech and polarization is derived from the technological architecture of these platforms. And the way in which that amplifies, inorganically amplifies extreme messaging and content and ultimately drives people into spaces that they otherwise may not have been driven into and holds them there without them understanding really fully, you know, and transparently why. And the ability of those spaces, those sort of cultural ecosystems to impact people's worldviews is extraordinarily strong, I think, whereas a piece of speech here or there may not, in fact, do the same thing. And So, so by I reducing it to an individual act, correct. we're losing sight of the structure. Correct. And in, a, in, you know, in an ideal world, I would say, you outcompete bad ideas, of course, with good ideas. And in an ideal world, we would have a sort of level playing field of speech in the digital world. These platforms would be genuinely neutral, and you would be able to then educate and mobilize civil society responses, for instance, in more innovative ways, stuff that we've tried to do at the Institute from the outset. We saw these problems and thought, why are we allowing this gap to develop between the activities of bad actors and those that would legitimately seek to undermine those ideas and propose alternative ideas? We must be doing this. And so I'm all for competing, but... You can't compete, of course, effectively if the playing field is tilted. And it is tilted because of this technological architecture. Yeah. And so until we you know, shift the conversation beyond the content moderation and removal conversation, which has been 
by and large, the focus of government uh, pressure and policy and indeed now regulation to date, mm-hmm. until we move beyond content moderation and removal and start to address these sort of structural sy- systemic issues, we won't address the fundamental problem. So I would argue that the, it's not just the regulatory bodies that are focusing on content moderation. It's also the companies themselves because they're about individual acts of speech and that's their unit that they want to prioritize is individual agency on their platform. So if you're talking about individual pieces of content, then that's getting away from this structural yes. and conversation, which they, they don't want to have. No, right? they don't want to really have that. I mean, it's a harder conversation to have because it's it represents a, a harder set of solutions ultimately. You know, we've pushed very hard for an approach by policymakers towards regulation that would really prioritize transparency. Hmm. And again, in in relation to that dichotomy, which I think is a false one between free speech and censorship, around which you've seen, you know, civil society actors come in and I think, you know, to an unhelpful conversation. Right. And the digital um, activists in particular are in real te- real conflict over that, right? Correct. With organizations sitting on both sides of that. Correct. Whereas actually, I think the conversation really needs to be about redressing the imbalance in this space and ensuring that we do, in fact, have a space in which free speech can happen. So what does that look way. like? What are the core levers that you think or the core incentives that are creating the imbalance in the way speech flows? In yes. Systems. I mean, you know, the, these are these are platforms designed to hold your attention as long as possible <laughs> um, in order that they can also use that attention to advertise against. So the algorithms are designed to find ways to hold your attention. And they have worked out essentially that by feeding you slightly more titillating variants of whatever it is that you're looking for, you're going to be there longer. Yep. Um, and so that drive towards more sensationalist content is, I think, a real one, except we see this in an anecdotal sense. And there is sort of anecdotal level research. But what we desperately need is access. There needs to be access to data by a third party. It doesn't necessarily need to be the research community, but it could be a regulator. We do that with other sectors, right? Correct. But what we do need to understand essentially is the algorithmic outcome from a public health perspective. What is the impact of that design in relation to how it impacts specific communities or constituencies, for instance? Mm. What is the public health outcome of these, of the design of the algorithms as they currently stand? That has to be the first step to having the conversation around what we then do with that. Mm. So Number one, access to that. Transparency around. Yeah, exactly. Access to that type of data to be able to verify what the impact of of that algorithmic design is right now. Then I think there can be a conversation around how one might go about tweaking that. I mean, and whether the companies should be required to do that in certain contexts. I think in some contexts we would say no, and in some we would probably opt yes. Mm. And in democratic environments, there should be a public debate around what that should be, what what response should be. There is a big job to be done around data mining and usage and transparency around the way in which your data is utilized. And this, again, I think there, there's some interesting work that was undertaken in Germany, the German cartel agency, the, the federal agency. Yeah, which is quite the name, isn't it? It is. It's absolutely. <laughs> I think competition with... bureaus around the world are jealous of that <laughs> yeah, name. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's their sort of, you know, central antitrust um, authority. 
it declared the consent that a user gives Facebook to use and combine data across the various platforms that Facebook owns in Germany a fiction because of the monopoly status of Facebook in that context. And this was appealed now and, and Facebook actually won the appeal. So it hasn't gone anywhere. But I think increasingly there are going to be questions asked about the way in which we hand over voluntarily, for the most part, our data and what we really understand of of that process in terms of how that's used and um, how that impacts the world that we see at the end of the day. So I think there's a lot of work to be done, done in that space. So there's a lot of those structural conversations really need to happen. And it, and this isn't even in the bigger antitrust conversation. Yeah, this is just, we're just talking about the content side of it right exactly. here and the, the exactly. way content is circulated. Exactly. And, it's really about that information ecosystem. So that's, a, that's the organic piece of that and how these algorithms are pushing seemingly organic content to us and not to us, or whatever the case may be, and defining what we see yeah. and whether we're heard and whether we are seen. But there's also the the paid and promoted and targeted aspect of that too, which I assume is a piece of the puzzle here too. That yes, the ability correct. to actually surgically target people with particular messages. Yes, exactly. And a, you know, and I think that you know, ad transparency is another piece of what we've been proposing mm -hmm. in terms of response. I think from a electoral standpoint, I think it's perhaps slightly less important than people make it out to be, but nonetheless desirable. Mm -hmm. So political advertising and issue-based advertising transparency, I think is absolutely critical. We... What does it say about democracy if we exist in an information environment where everybody knows different things and those things are targeted to their biases? I mean, it's frightening to me the idea of information segregation. And we, we've started to see this in a number of ways and we see the type of impact that has on communities. And we started to see it actually with the onset of, of the satellite era and the ability of people to watch only, I don't know, what cable news that it aligns with their ideology. Exactly. Yeah. And now, of course, this is, you know, uh, so much more of an issue in, in the digital era. We saw in the German context, people who were voting IFD were imbibing their information solely from alternative online uh, outlets. Those that were voting mainstream political parties were still imbibing mainstream information, news and so on sources. Mm. So you start to see this segregation, we see it in America in a massive way, mm. where it's almost impossible to think how you would penetrate that bubble mm. now. Mm. What types of means are available for you know you to penetrate into that echo chamber? Yeah. That's very, very dangerous. And you know, speaks to acute polarization in ways that I think ultimately degrade our democratic civic culture. Yeah. Uh, without an ability to talk to each other about difference, there is no possibility for democracy to actually thrive and survive. Yeah, and it's not just polarization. Of, uh, everyone wants to bucket it as ideological polarization, but it's not just that. It's polarization of everything we know, right? It's Correct. it's on any one issue. Correct. Exactly. We know different things. Exactly. And that's... Exactly. Which is exactly. It's much bigger. It's mm. I think it's a much bigger problem than just the political space. Mm. But I think it affects the political space in such an obvious way today that we require a response and it needs to be quick. So I would say I'm a big proponent of thinking in big picture terms around our digital policy strategy for the future because I think we need to be really actively thinking about what is our vision for the internet, for the good, for a mm. good internet. Mm. What is the vision that liberal democracies have for the internet? Because all sorts of countries around the world have their vision and they are pursuing that vision 
quite aggressively and actively, and we have none for ourselves. And this is a, a you know, it's important. We also need to be live to these threats in the here and now, so that we don't find ourselves essentially with too few players around the table to have leverage to make this happen. Yeah, and and those are difficult things to do at the same time, right? Yeah. I mean, just to, just to end, I guess. I mean, on a slightly maybe more optimistic note, that. If it does need to be a civic conversation about the kind of information environment we want, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. What, how do you see that mobilizing? Do you see it mobilizing? Are we starting to see a tipping point where people are actually aware and pushing back yeah. against the very nature of the internet they live in? I, I mean, I think that there is a growing consciousness by you know among people in many, many, many places now, certainly in many Western European countries we see today, of the harms of this digital era. And whether they see it from the perspective of the harms to their children, the more sort of visible harms of terrorism, the disinformation, the sort of subverting of our democratic systems, in a way doesn't matter. It's become an you know the issue in a way of our time. Mm. And I think there's a, a much bigger appetite than policymakers understand so far to, to to see bold responses to this and to see leadership in this space. The internet also offers us a tool like no other, of course, and social media in particular, to reach out and build constituencies in favor of certain things. I mean, we are just, we see sort of good actors, particularly poor, at doing this kind of social mobilization. We really do need to see much more of that happen. But I would say there's low-hanging fruit in the following context in my mind. One is that existing law isn't being applied and enforced effectively online. If yeah. we were just to do a scoping of existing law in liberal democracies and look at the obstacles to having enforcement happen in the online world and think innovatively about making sure that we overcame those obstacles, we'd be in a very, very, very much better place than we already are, number one. You know, before we even start to build out laws for the internet, new laws for the for the and internet. reimagine everything and man. reimagining everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If we were then to start to head into this much more structural conversation beyond content moderation around specific siloed issue sets, you know, terrorism one, sure. you know, one camp, hate speech one camp, but really to start to think about these structural issues again, we'd be potentially dealing, you know, in leaps and bounds with the problem. We'd see sort of systemic changes. In a, in a very small space of time. And then the longer term, we want to see better engineering practices and, and a culture of sort of responsible engineering. Mm. What's being built. Exactly. What's yeah. being built and what is the impact of it? Yeah. Lots of stuff has been built now without really thinking through the ultimate consequences. I think now we're in a place where technologists themselves in Silicon Valley are saying, oops, we needed to have probably thought this through a little bit further that now that attitude and that perspective needs to be built into the way stuff is built going forward yeah our ability to do that is dependent on understanding the system and you've been at the center of that for a long time so thank you and thanks for talking to us about it thank you so that was my conversation with sasha havlicek the CEO of the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, and the conversation was recorded in in Dublin, Ireland. Thanks for listening, and as always, let me know uh, what you thought of today's episode by using the hashtag #BigTechPodcast. I'm Taylor Owen, CG Senior Fellow and Professor at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill. Bye for now. 
The Big Tech Podcast is a partnership between the Center for International Governance Innovation, CG, and The Logic. CG is a Canadian nonpartisan think tank focused on international governance, economy, and law. The Logic is an award-winning digital publication reporting on the innovation economy. Big Tech is produced and edited by Trevor Hunsberger, and Kate Rosewell is our story producer. Visit BigTechPodcast.com for more information about the show. Thank you.